0: Well, last time we were together, we closed up the sixth and final of these cycles in Revelation, looking at the millennial cycle there in Revelation 20, which ends with the great white throne judgment and the destruction of all evil, wickedness, and ultimately of death itself. It has been utterly defeated. All of the enemies of God's people, all of the oppressors of God's people, all of the things that brings pain and sorrow to God's people has been fully and completely judged and is now being utterly and eternally tormented and destroyed in the lake of fire. And now we get to the seventh cycle, the final picture of Revelation. After six difficult but short, and I say that in quotes, when we say short in Revelation, it is always meant to be understood symbolically, six difficult and short days, of Christ's work of redemption, retribution, and restoration, we now come to the seventh and final eternal day of God's people. A day of eternal rest. As we get the picture of the new heavens and the new earth, where all things have been made brand new, the full inheritance is now given to the Son and to His Bride in the completed covenant of redemption. Every promise now brought to pass. Every essence of hope that we find in the canon of Scripture now brought into complete fulfillment. What a joyful day it will be. Let us look to that seventh and eternal day of rest and what awaits for us now in verses 1 through 8 of Revelation 21. Really a summary and a summation statement of everything else that follows in the close of the book. We read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, The faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I I don't like preaching this text. Because there are no words that can come close to touching its glory. There is nothing I can say to you tonight that makes this picture more glorious than it is. More wonderful than it will be. More delightful than what awaits us. And so I just pray that for the the next short time that we are together that you will bear with me. As I seek to scratch at the unscratchable, to touch at the untouchable, to preach on the unpreachable, to help you imagine the unimaginable, to put forth to your mind the incomprehensible of the realities of what God has prepared for his people. This is a marvelous picture. And as the Lord said clearly, it is trustworthy and true if you find yourself struggling in your walk of faith, if you'll find yourself being wearied by the world, find yourself being wearied by the weight of your own sin, the only thing I can really give to you tonight is take heart. For this is what will wait you. This is what your king prepares for you. This is what your husband prepares has gone to prepare for his bride. The first thing we see in verses 1-2 through is the glorious vision. This is the summary of everything else that flows. These first two verses. The summary of the place for the bride and the summary of the the bride herself. So we see the glorious place and we see the glorious bride in these first two verses. We read uh, once again, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. So here we get the place, the reality that this is a new heaven and a new earth. It is totally new. It is meant to be understood as as totally discontinuous from the old one. Brand new, new heaven, new earth. Perfectly new, perfectly renovated, perfectly purified. But it is important to note the reality that there is a physical earth. That this is not just some abstract, ethereal realm where we're floating in some incorporeal existence. This is a real, tangible, physical place where we will walk and eat and smell and taste and touch and feel the reality of it is, is that the new heaven, picture of the cosmos, as well as the spiritual realm itself, is just now made fully unified with earth. Heaven and earth are now fully combined in perfection, just as it was in the beginning. But even better. For there is no hope, there is no even fear of losing what now is, like there was in the beginning. But this is a real earth. But the Lord had to remove all that was once there. The old earth had to pass away in order for Him to undo and reshape the way in which He brings about His cosmic cycle of life. Back in the Noahic covenant in Genesis 8 verse 22, we read while the earth remains... Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So in order for that cycle to be broken and renewed, the old earth itself had to cease. It had to pass away. And this is precisely what God promised through the law and through the prophets, primarily in Isaiah. Isaiah 65 is where we get the fullest picture in the Old Testament of the new heavens and new earth, Isaiah writes in Isaiah 65, 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. I believe that this will be one of the ways in which the Lord eliminates all pain and sorrow in the heavens and earth to come. Is that after the judgment, after the rewarding, after that we now dwell forever, I believe that the Lord removes that knowledge of the the horrors of what once was. Not that we won't remember His grace and reflect upon that forever. We will bear those marks in His hands. We will see them and behold them and praise Him. But that the remembrance, that is holding fast to the guilt and shame of what once, The thoughts of our past failures and frustrations. The, The thoughts of the warfare and the bloodshed and the terror and the horrors of what we see now will be wiped away from our minds. We will not think upon them. They will not be there. The only thing that man will know in heaven is God. But that's precisely what it was in the beginning. Prior to eating the fruit, man only knew God. He only knew God and goodness. That was what happened when he ate the knowledge of good and evil. So I believe that knowledge of evil will no longer be there. It will be eradicated. It will only be God and good. Man will only know God. And that was what we were created for. We were created to know only God and his goodness. To know what it is to be in perfect and intimate relationship without evil. Without a single thought of my brother and sister in heaven. Of what they might feel about me or what I think about them. I will only see a fellow image bearer in glory and goodness. We will celebrate together in the glories of God because we will only know Him. He will be our unified vision, our unified heartbeat, the triune God of heaven. There will be no remembrance of the evil which was that that part of the fall of knowing the knowledge of good and evil, that that reality of evil, where we now try to become the standard of what is right and wrong, the standard of what is good and evil that is now fully eradicated from us. We only know God and we only know good. That will be the new heavens and the new earth. Paul writes of this in Romans 8, 19-23, the reality of the new creation. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. And so, right, in order for these redeemed sons and daughters of God to dwell forever in a physical place in their glorified bodies, they need to live within a glorified earth, a glorified space. Of physicality, right? There will be physical, it will be real glory. It will be real physical. We'll be walking and eating and tasting and touching and growing and cultivating and working. Yes, you will work in heaven. Work happened before the fall, but it was a work of, of harvesting in what God was producing. It wasn't a toil of labor and difficulty, it was going and reaping the daily produce of what God was providing. That's what it will be in all of its fullness and glory as the creation now is waiting itself to be renewed and to be glorified and to be purified. That's what every earthquake, every tornado, every hurricane, every thunderstorm is screaming, oh, come, Lord Jesus, come. That it might be glorified and renewed back to its present state. My friends, we live in Alaska. And there are times as I drive down the road, coming here to church or elsewhere, looking at the mountain ranges, I am stunned by the glory of God and His creation. And yet this is a fallen world. I look through the lenses of telescopes and see the glories of the galaxies beyond us and am moved to praise my Creator. I can't imagine what a non-fallen creation looks like. I can't imagine the glories of a creation not subjected to futility. I can't even imagine. This is so important to understand because biblical thought always places man on a redeemed earth, not a heavenly realm removed from earthly existence. There's a reason why our brothers and sisters who are in heaven, who are surrounding the throne of God right now, in glorified spirits, are still crying out, How long, O Lord? Because they recognize that in their state of just being a glorified soul, divorced from body, is incomplete. They long for the fullness of the glorification of their bodies as well, and where they can walk in the presence of God for all eternity in the redeemed earth. That picture of an esoteric, disconnected spirit from body is Gnostic. This idea that we're just going to be little fat cherubs floating in heaven playing spiritual harps is totally divorced from biblical teaching. God made us, He made us to be physical beings. He made us to eat and smell and taste and touch all to His glory. He made us to know Him and to walk with Him. He made us to have dominion over this earth. He made us for that. He made us to live in a redeemed earth with Him in the midst of our presence at all times and us in His presence at all times. says the sea was no more And it's because, as we've seen throughout Revelation, we've had this discussion multiple times. What is the sea in the biblical corpus? It is the place where evil arises. It's where the beast rises in Revelation 13. It is where the wicked nations rise in Daniel chapter 7, verse 3. We read in Isaiah 51, 10. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So not only in the biblical corpus is it a place where wicked arises, a a place which which symbolizes chaos and evil, but it is also a barrier for God's people to go and worship Him. And what the Lord is saying is that barrier has been taken away. No longer will evil arise from among you. No longer will you know the fear of rising wickedness and evil that might pounce upon you in the day you do not know. No longer will you have to worry about any limitations to get to where you need to be to know freedom and worship. No, all you know is the dry ground to where you can walk to go and experience the freedom of God and Him alone. There is no slavery, no captivity, no danger, nothing that should cause you to fear. There is no longer a sea that can bring about disquiet in the glories to come. There is no longer a place by which evil can arise. and There is no longer a place that can keep you from going to worship your God. It is all removed This is the picture of the new heavens and the new earth of which brothers and sisters in our new birth here and now we are already the first fruits that that indeed is what is taking place Paul writes this clearly in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 16 and 7 he says from now on therefore we regard no one according to the flesh Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, literally died. Behold, the new has come. We are already the first fruits of the new creation, right? Is it complete? No. But it's important to understand that in, the re- in regards to biblical reality, experience or existence, I should say is a better word, existence is not a static thing. We are, we will be, and we are being. Existence is not static. You're not just like, well... This is where I am. And that's it. Why? Because we serve an eternal God. God is outside of time. He is the great I am. I am that I am. Not I am becoming. I will be. I am. And so our reality in the mind and heart and plan of God is an already established reality. Yet within time, that existence, that being is not static. We're all over the place. And the same is true with our realities of being a new creation. We already are a new creation. It is guaranteed, it is certain, it is sure. We already are born again. Yet, we know we are still waiting glorified bodies. We still know we have sin that is clinging to our our souls which needs to be pruned day in and day out through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And yet, we are new new creations in Christ. And what we now perceive by faith we will then perceive by sight. For now, we walk by faith in the reality that we are new creations. But on this day, we will walk fully by sight. Which is why there will be no more hope, nor faith. There will just be love. Because we now walk fully by sight of the reality of what was declared already for us now in our Christian walk. Then secondly, we not only see this holy place, this glorious place that the Lord has prepared, we now see the bride, a picture of the new Jerusalem. Now, We're not going to talk too much on this because literally, verse 9 through the end of chapter 21 is all about the New Jerusalem. It is all a detailed picture of the bride of Christ, the church. And so, this is just kind of a little teaser to to give some anxiety, to to give some anxiousness to the heart of the reader to want to know more about this picture of the bride, in which the the Lord will give us that in verse 9 through the, the rest of the chapter. But for now, we get a little bit of a teaser as to what is the new Jerusalem. We read in verse 2, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Once again, Isaiah 65 is coming to pass here. Isaiah 65, 17, a picture of the new earth. Isaiah 65, 18, a picture of the new Jerusalem. Isaiah 65, 18, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. Right? So the new Jerusalem is clearly here not a literal city but a people. And there are so many situations right throughout Scripture that the people of God are referred to not only as a city, but as Jerusalem herself, the dwelling place of God. When you think of a city, right, we, as the Lord calls us, are a city on a hill. It's his people. Where does Jerusalem sit? On a hill. Right? He was making it clear already, drawing the parallel, that we are that city on a hill. But elsewhere, throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, the new Jerusalem, the Jerusalem to come, is seen as the bride of Christ. The first place we see this is Isaiah 52. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall be no more come into you, the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without mercy or without money." For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there in the Syrian oppressed them for nothing. Now, therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taking away for nothing their rulers well, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, it is that day that they shall know that it is I who speak here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of, of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm. Before For the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Isaiah 52 is laying out everything we saw in Revelation 20. A picture of the fact that the Lord will come to redeem His Jerusalem. Redeem His bride who is called to prepare herself in holy garments to arise from the dust. And how will she be gathered? She will be gathered through the feet of those who go and proclaim good news. Blessed are those who proclaim the feet of good news, which is right out of Romans 10. So Paul quotes. We saw that this morning. How shall faith come but hearing and hearing the word of Christ? And after she is gathered, the Lord will return against all those who despise her. And he will make his salvation of her known to the ends of the earth. So what we've seen and here, that redemption is now full and final of His holy Jerusalem. This Jerusalem is seen as coming down from heaven. Why? It's because right now, that's where the bride of Christ is. She is in heaven with Him right now. Waiting to come and to, to stay in her eternal place which He has prepared for her in the new heavens and new earth. She is the Jerusalem from above. Paul, writing in Galatians 4, verse 26-31, speaks of her when he says, But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. We are the child of the free woman, our mother in heaven, the new Jerusalem. She is seen as both our faithful mother and is also Christ's beautiful bride. Coming down out of heaven tells us something very important. That when we say our citizenship is in heaven, it is not saying that we don't have a place on this earth. When Paul says for our citizenship is in heaven in Philippians 3.20, he's referring to our place in this world. We don't belong to this present world. And when the Bible speaks of the world, right, it's often meaning both, many different things. Sometimes it means every single person in the world. Sometimes it means the age of the, the world. Sometimes it means the, the sense of the spirit of this age and the world, the fallenness of the world, that which is antithetical to God. And, and that's really what he's talking about. Our citizenship is with the Lord, where He is. But when He comes and makes things new, we will come down, dressed and adorned as the pure and perfect bride of Christ, clothed in amidst glory and righteousness, and we will come to our eternal dwelling place, our eternal home and glory, in the new Earth, where we will dwell forever in His presence. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22 to 24 but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Here we have those who have been washed by the blood of Christ. And why does it say that his his blood speaks better testimony than that of Abel? Because what did Abel's blood cry out? Guilty. Death. Wickedness. It cried out for justice. But the blood of Christ and those who are covered by it cries out salvation. Forgiveness. And that is what we are adorned with forever as the new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven, adorned in the perfect raiment of glory to dwell forever in the new heavens and new earth. We are prepared as a bride, it says, Isaiah sixty two one through five. For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness, and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness, and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall be no more termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called My delight is in her, and your land married for the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married for as a young man marries a young woman so shall your sons marry you and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride so shall your God rejoice over you we've been brought down to the place that our bridegroom has prepared for us The marriage has happened. Now he brings us to the home where the consummation of his glory will be had forever. In perfect splendor. This is what it means to be adorned for him, to be dressed in his righteousness and his purity, his glory. And we come down to to experience the consummation of in His presence forever as we've been adorned for our husband. We've already saw this in the marriage supper of the Lamb in in Revelation 19, which is a recapitulation, but how we get a clearer picture of what this adorning for, this adorning is required in order for us to forever experience the glories of where we are and where we will be in the new heavens and earth. And now we see that the bridegroom his perfect cleansing, sanctifying work for his bride has now come to pass. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And this is the day of that presentation. She is now prepared and brought forward to Him in all glory. and He will delight in her forever. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8 through 10. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age of love and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. Leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and I covered you with silk. This is the Lord's covenant to His bride. This is the Lord's covenant to His people. The consummation has come. A place prepared for her. In other words, all of this cosmic renovation, the Lord says to His bride, it was for you. It was for you. All the more reason to sing His praise. All the more reason to love Him with an everlasting love. This covenant is unending and unbreaking. And everything that He did, every fire, every locust, every thunder, every plague, every pain, every sorrow that we saw Him bring out against that enemy which would hurt his people which would oppress his people all of it we now see what it was for it was for his bride it was for his divine jealous love for her it's the reason why Paul would write to the Corinthians 2 Corinthians eleven two: for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ I I didn't come to dress you up the way that I think you ought to look. God help. God help the men. God help those individuals who have looked at the pure bride of Christ in this world and said in order for us in order for us to win others we must make her attractive to the world. And rather than continuing to preach the word that she might be washed by this precious word anointed by the Holy Spirit through the love and compassion of faithful shepherds and leaders and those within the body, brothers and sisters, loving on each other, caring for one another, that beautiful, pure, betrothed bride that doesn't bring in the idolatry of the world, that rather than it being that, we've dressed her up like a prostitute for the world to go after her only for its own desires. Paul says, I didn't do that. And neither should any of us. I don't want to stand on the day of judgment as an under-shepherd of the Lord and say, sorry, Lord, I didn't think she was beautiful enough. I didn't think your word could cleanse her enough. I didn't think that you could do it on your own to present her the way you wanted her. I thought I could help you a little. God help us to do that. And this picture of the church, brothers and sisters, that we're going to get a lot more detail of over the next few weeks in, in chapters 21, verse 9, all the way through the, the beginning of chapter 22, ought to cause us to rethink the way we look at the church on earth. So often we are quick to belittle the church to blame problems on the church, to talk bad about the church. Well, I know the church does this and the church is bad. and The church is full of all of this badness and broken people and not and, and, and lose sight of the fact that, no, this is the end state of the church. This C.S. Lewis who said that that brother and sister who gets on your nerves, who you dislike, who, you, who bothers you now, that if you were to see them in their glorified state now, apart from what you will be also, you'd be, you'd be given to worship them. That's what they'll be. That's what you'll be. This is the beloved bride of Christ, brothers and sisters. We ought not to speak glibly about it. We not ought to undermine it and just always be quick to just blame it on the church. That's the bride of Christ we're talking about. You should be very careful, and this is her end state. Those seven, those seven letters to the seven churches at the beginning where they're full of their brokenness and pain. They're going through oppression and sorrow. They've got problems within them. All those things are happening. This is their instate. This is the instate. state. Brothers and sisters, this is the end state for Hillside Baptist Church. A glorious bride prepared for her husband. Let us never lose sight of that as we come to worship now, awaiting that day. We see then the grand announcement, verses 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from, the eyes, from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. The dwelling place of God is now with man. Eden, the curse of Eden, the fall, has now been reversed. There is no more cherubim, no more flaming sword that keeps men from God or God from men. Why? Because Christ took the flaming sword. He bore it so that now we can pass through. And now we are forever with God. At Calvary, Christ swallowed fully the flaming sword of the cherubim that would ever keep us separated from God. And now we freely pass forever with Him. And there is now no veil between God and man in the new heavens and new earth. We are there with Him and He is there with us. And this is the fulfillment of His promises to Moses and His promises to the prophets and His word and preaching through Jesus Leviticus 26, 11-12 to Moses, I will make my dwelling among you. And my soul shall not abhor you. Thank you, Jesus. And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. Ezekiel thirty-seven, twenty-seven. the promise of the new covenant. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Isaiah 66, 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name Remain. The dwelling place of God is with man. A restoration of what was lost and what has been typified through the tabernacle and the temple is now there forever. And it's not just a reality of the spirit dwelling in us, of Jesus living within us and working through us. It is real in His presence, in His midst, with no separation. The fullness thereof, not merely just a portion of it. We just have a portion of the Spirit now. A portion of the presence of God is His temple. But then we will know the fullness of it. We will know the fullness of Him in, in us, around us, on the throne before us. He will be everywhere. The fullness of the triune God will be before us and in us at all times. We will know nothing but the immensity of his presence. It will be Emmanuel forever. Matthew 123, Jesus is told that his name will be Emmanuel, for God is with us. And what he came to begin, he will finish with absolute permanence. He will be with us forever. Forever. Never to be lost again. Never to be taken from us. Never to be separated again from His people. He will be our God. And we will be His people. I love this. He's gathered us all. This multitude of every tribe, tongue, and nation of which we've already seen in Revelation. A number which no man can number. The immensity of His salvation will be be beyond all belief And every one of us will be able to sing aloud we are His people. We are His people. In Ezekiel 47, we get a picture of the temple vision of Ezekiel. A temple vision which is ultimately symbolically portraying the church and its eternal dwelling with God. And one of the things he says in there is he's referring to Gentiles. Those who are not part of ethnic Israel. And I love what he says here. In Ezekiel forty-seven twenty-two 22-23, he says, You shall allot it as an inheritance, this is talking about the dwelling place of God, for yourselves and for the sojourners who reside among you and have children among you. They shall be to you as native-born children of Israel. With you they shall be allotted an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. And whatever tribe the sojourner resides there, you shall assign him his inheritance, declares the Lord God. They shall be as native-born sons of Israel. And it's not what we see in the New Testament over and over again. You are the true circumcision. You are the Israel of God, speaking to the Galatians and to the Philippians. You have become the native-born sons of God. Why? Because you've been born again through Jesus who is Israel. He is the essence and the fullness of Israel. And when you are born again in Him, you bear His identity. You are attached to Him. He is the vine. You are the branches And you therefore receive the inheritance. So we do not argue with the dispensational view regarding the fact that all of God's promises to Israel will come to pass. We just say they will come pass to the true Israel of God, which is the people from every tribe, tongue, and nation grafted into the true Israel himself, Jesus Christ. And every one of those promises will come to pass. As we receive the inheritance as the true born sons of Israel. Just as Ezekiel said. We already have the first fruits of this reality. As Paul writes in Second Corinthians six, sixteen, you are the temple of the living God. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Already we have that reality within us. God himself will be them at, with them as their God. He says, Isaiah sixty-five nineteen, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. And is that not what we see in Revelation here? He will wipe away tears from their eyes, every tear. Death shall be no more, no mourning, nor crying, no pain. The former things have passed away. We can't imagine what that's going to be like. You can't imagine what it's like to have no inkling of a negative thought in your heart and mind. To know nothing of pain. Nothing of sadness. No no straying thought whatsoever. We know nothing of that. And we won't until this moment. I meant to bring this up last week when we talked about the great white throne of judgment and those who will be cast in the lake of fire. The reality of the fact that they will dwell forever without any ounce of the grace of God ever revealed to them. Any ounce of the light of God ever being revealed to them again. Only wrath. Only darkness. Only separation. And here, we will only know the immense presence of God. No pain, no death, no sorrow, only light, only glory, only peace, only pleasure. In other words, for those who are in Christ, this is the closest you'll ever be to hell. But for those who are not in Christ, this is the closest you'll ever be to heaven. God help us, this is the closest you're going to ever get to heaven. But for those in Christ, this is the closest you'll ever be to hell. Why? Because we experience death, we experience pain and sorrow and suffering in this life, but not in the life to come. Not in the age to come you won't. He will wipe away every tear. This is a fulfillment of Isaiah 25, verse 8. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. The picture here of this being wiped away is the reality. These tears represent all human sorrow, all human tragedy, all human evil and they are wiped away. They're completely wiped away. The Lord Jesus will wipe away every tear from your eyes. Everything that could ever cause you pain again will be no more. I love this because of the genuine care of the intimacy that God will have for each and every one of His people. He will wipe away tears from your eyes. Not just some mass thing of His wiping it away and there's no crying here. It is an intimate, genuine care for every single one of His innumerable saints which will dwell there in glory. No more pain. No more sorrow. Why? The absence of all these things is due to the immediate presence of God. There's a reason why death won't be there. It's because God's there. And where God is, there's life. There's a reason there's no more mourning or pain or sorrow because the immediate presence of God will be there, which inherently leads to the absence of it. The absence of these things is not the end in and of itself. So often we look forward to heaven because we just look for the fact that there's not going to be death and there won't be any pain. Instead of looking to what these things mark, these things do not mark an end in and of themselves. They mark a greater reality behind them, which is the fact God's there. God is present, which is why these other things are gone. And the reason why this will be glorious is because God's there. That's why. God will be there in all of His fullness and all of His triune fullness. God is there and that's what eradicates all those other things. God is the end to the glory. Everything else is just a beautiful overflow of it. A beautiful sprinkle on the immense cupcake of God's incredible glory and presence that will be there with us. Isaiah 35.10 And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Pain, evil, tragedy, sorrow, sickness, death. My friends, those are going to be the only thing left behind when Jesus comes. I'm going to write a book called Left Behind and actually use it to write a biblical narrative. Which is the only thing that will be left behind when Christ returns is sickness and sorrow and pain and death. All things will be made new. And the dwelling place of God will be with men. It will be better than the beginning. For the former things have passed away. And then the Lord closing gives us a divine guarantee. We hear the words of the Lord Himself speaking from the throne here in verses 5 through 8. And He was seated on the throne, and said, Behold, I am making all things new. And He said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And He said to me, It is done. So here we get a divine guarantee from the words, from the mouth of the Lord himself sitting on the throne. A divine guarantee to his suffering saints, whether it's the first century or the 21st century. This is the Lord's guarantee to you regarding this glorious reality of what we've read in the new heavens and the new earth. He says, behold, I am making all things new. All things This is a complete cosmic renovation. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. In other words, he wants to make abundantly clear, this glorious vision is not wishful thinking on behalf of John. This is not something that he's crossing his fingers and just trying to to lull his people and saying, hey, just keep going and and, and maybe it's going to work out in the end. No, this, the reality that He will make all things brand new, that He will remove all things which oppress and cause pain and sorrow to His people, that He will adorn His bride in immense eternal glory forever, where she will walk in the immediate presence of God forever, is not wishful thinking, it's trustworthy and true. So weary, saint, take heart. This is your guaranteed outcome. This is not wishful thinking for suffering saints. This is an absolute guarantee to the disciples of Christ. This is trustworthy and true. There is nothing uncertain about the future for those who trust in Christ. There are a few things in your life that I can say you can be absolutely certain of. This is one of them. If you're in Jesus Christ, what we've read today is absolutely certain for you. No gray area. This is absolutely true. And it will be far better than anything that I could have explained to you tonight. There's only one other place that we see that concept of trustworthy and true used in the scriptures. And it's found in Paul's writing to the letter to Timothy. We actually preached this on Christmas. 1 Timothy 1.15 This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost. In other words, there are two statements in the Bible. It's all trustworthy and true, but that actually the Lord himself makes the claim. First, that Christ came to save sinners. Second, Christ will save them to the utmost. The work that He began, He will bring it to completion. These words are trustworthy and true. It is done. I love it. It's done. The Lord is already declaring this as a finished reality. It's done. Because in the heart and mind and will of God, who is eternal, this is done. The only reason that the Lord can say it is done is for two reasons His sovereignty and His eternality. He's eternal, therefore, He is outside of time. He already is there. He is already here. He is already back. I mean, this is the eternality of God. He knows what will be. And secondly, His sovereignty. He knows what will be because He's the one who does them. He's the one who decrees them into being. There is nothing that He can know that He does not act. He will do this. His sovereignty and His eternality make it absolutely certain. It is done. And isn't it amazing that Christ's kingdom is inaugurated at Calvary with the words, It's finished. And it's consummated in glory with it's done. It is finished. I love that term because they're different. Tetelestai and Gagrona there at the end. There's two different words, but they mean the same thing in many ways. But I think when the Lord said it is finished, what he was talking about was the cup of which he had just drank. The full wrath of God for those He came to save was now fully drunk. It is finished. It's done. It has been swallowed in full. And when He says, it is done, the I," what He's talking about is covenant completion. It's done. The fullness of the covenant of redemption has been accomplished. And my bride is saved forever. I am the Alpha and the Omega, His eternality. To the thirsty, I will give from the water of life without payment. I love this reality. Because remember what the punishment is for the wicked? They will drink of the cup of God's wrath forever. But for those in Christ, they will drink from the cup of living water forever. And notice what he says, without payment. Grace. All eternity will be marked by the song Amazing Grace without payment. It is freely offered day and night for those who are in Christ. Why? Because He drank all the wrath that was designated for you. And so now He offers you the rivers of living water which is Himself we see that in John chapter 4 verse 10, right? What he says to the woman at the, the well. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. This is the good shepherd who leads us to the streams of water where we are nourished forever for all eternity given His life-giving water, never to know spiritual famine or drought again. Everything that our soul needs to be refreshed forever will be abundantly supplied by Christ. You will never know want again. The one who conquers will have his heritage. Remember, this goes all back to those seven letters if you are faithful until the end, if you persevere in the faith, this is your inheritance. You will have it. You will have it. If you press into Christ and faithfully live unto Him unto death, this is your reward. It's life. It's life everlasting with Him for all eternity on a new heaven and new earth. He will be your God and you will be His Son. That is first given to David in the Davidic covenant. And now, what Christ has provided is to now give it to all of us, who He has now given us rights to be called sons and daughters of the living God. Romans chapter 8, verse 14 through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be also glorified with Him. That's why Paul says this light momentary affliction is working in us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. Count it all joy, brothers, when you come across various sufferings and afflictions. Why? Because you know that as you are suffering for Christ and in Christ, you will be glorified in Him. Because this inheritance of glory is yours in Christ. This is our inheritance, brothers and sisters. This is the inheritance for every born-again believer in Christ but just to give one final warning to the reader. He leaves a a vice list now those who are left out. I like what he begins with, the cowardly. Oftentimes that that may seem to shake us up. What does he mean by that? He means by those who are given to the fear of men. Fear and afraid to, to follow through that they might lose their life that they might have to give up something. That they might be called out in their sin and wickedness. Whatever that fear may be, it keeps them from living in faith to Christ. To stepping in faith to Christ. The fear of men. The fear of loss. The fear of the world. It keeps them from the only source of life they could ever have. The faithless. Those who refuse to live in faith. Those who refi- you refuse to follow Christ. Those who refuse to... Embrace the knowledge of God written upon their heart and to fully embrace faith in Christ and Him alone. The detestable, those who are given over to their depravity, who go after time and time again the passions of the the, the flesh and the lust of the eyes, the murderers, both in heart and in deed sexually immoral you name it if it is anything that is outside the parameters of Genesis 224 one man one woman within covenant marriage it's sexually immoral pornography homosexuality polyamory polygamy you name it if it's outside of that it's sin And I like the last one here idol- sorcerers and idolaters, those who seek to lure men away. Whether it be drugs, false teaching, those who seek to lure others away in deception from God. And then the very last one is liars. I think there's a reason why that's the last one. Because the very first thing that lured people away from God was a liar in the garden. And guess what? He'll never lure away anybody again because His place is the lake of fire. None of these will have a place in glory. But I want to read this promise here. In this one act of hope, if perhaps you know someone, or maybe that's even you, who find yourself in that current place today, There's another vice list like this in the Scriptures. And Paul talks about about it in the reality of those who have been given over to this kind of wickedness, this kind of evil. And he says here, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived Neither the sexy immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have practiced homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. In other words... These individuals who are in the lake of fire are not there because they were beyond the mercy of God. They're there because they rejected it. And the reason why this vice list is so important is because notice, their identity is their vice. Cowards. Liars. Liars anyone who wants to embrace their sin as their identity, this will be your end. You will not be in the lake of fire because of the lack of God's mercy. You'll only be there because of the rejection of it. Because everyone else who will be in glory, such were some of them. Such were some of them. So what do we do here as we close tonight? First, we need to reorient our understanding of heaven. God will remake the earth to be our eternal home. Now, what will that new earth look like? I don't know. I don't know if it's going to be 10 million times bigger. I don't know. I just know it's going to be amazing. But it will be a physical place where heaven and earth will dwell together in perfect unison. God and man perfectly one. Where we will see and run and feel and taste and touch and work and do all to the glory of God. We need to reorient our vision of heaven, not just some ethereal clouds out in the middle of nowhere. It will be real and physical and it will be wonderful. Second, we are the first fruits of the goodness and glory to come. Do we live like it? Do we live like that is the end state? Or do we find ourselves fretting and worrying over every little bit of bad news we get? Do we find ourselves complaining about every discomfort? Do we find ourselves striving for comfort here rather than working fully for the glory of God and the salvation of men, knowing the rest we have to come? We've got no business to be idle here. What a waste of the short time the Lord gives us to be idle seeking comfort when we have an eternity of it waiting for us. Do we live like we are the first fruits of the glory to come? Or do we find ourselves meddling in fear and anxiety and comfort as if what He says is trustworthy and true, we don't really know. My friends, the intimacy we will have with God is beyond all comprehension. I don't know what it's going to be like to see Him face to face. I mean, there's a really good song called I Can Only Imagine. I don't have a clue what I'll do. I just know I'll probably lay prostrate until He has to pick me up off the ground. I can't imagine beholding the glories of His face. To see the smile of a Savior who died for me. To know the presence of my Heavenly Father who has loved me from all eternity and set His choosing affection upon me for no other reason than His own goodness. And a Spirit who is dwelling in me that has walked with me in my wickedness and nastiness and yet has not departed from me but sanctified me every day through it. I can't imagine what it's going to be like. But the closeness and intimacy of knowing only God and His goodness is what awaits us. And beloved, the end will be better than the beginning. Because there will be no more deceitful serpent that can pull you away. There will be no more negative, wicked thought that tries to challenge the throne of God. It will only be glory forever and always. All things will be made new. What a day it'll be. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and praise you. We praise you for this truth. Lord, forgive me for my inadequacy. For my inadequacy to put forth the glorious reality of what will be in a manner that is even close to befitting what the true glory of it will be like. But Lord, I pray that through your Spirit you'll work through the shortcomings of my speech to press upon the hearts of every precious saint here, the glories that awaits them, the trustworthy and true reality of the new heavens and new earth that you have gone to prepare a place for us and that you will be certain to give us as your precious glorified bride. Lord, help us live in light of this glorious truth every day that we might live a little more bold, a little more courageous, a little more fervent for your mission and your kingdom. To cast off the comforts of this world knowing our home is one to come. Our comfort is one to come. Our rest is one to come. Let us rely and press into the first fruits of those realities already established within us. And let them only move us to further action. To go after sinners with the gospel. To live more faithfully to those who are hurting. To go after the outcast and the broken of this world. To literally go into the darkest pits of hell that are on this earth. To go after those who are there because we'll never know what hell's like. So we can go in it boldly here. We can plunge into its depths here to go after your sheep that may be caught in them. Because in Christ, Lord, all we will know is glory. And so let us embrace the sorrow and suffering now just as a reminder of what will be. As a reminder that right now it is for our good and for Your glory as we are being conformed into the image of the Son day after day, renewed by His mercy and grace, sanctified by the Spirit. God, let us look to the finish line that we we might run the race set before us with more fervency, with more passion, and most importantly, with a relentless joy that cannot be robbed by the foolishness of this world. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.